morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you may be, and welcome to 2 Minutes 59, Lake County, Illinois' favorite and perhaps only Clash-inspired podcast. I'm your host. My name is David Von Ebers, and it is a cold and dreary June afternoon as I sit and record this. Um, It is uh, not at all like the uh, weather conditions I've talked about the last few times, (laughs) so that's what I get for... uh, for crowing about the weather over the past few weeks, but uh, it's uh, cold uh, and cloudy and not super pleasant today in Northern Illinois, but that's a perfect time to sit here with a cup of coffee, talk about things related to my favorite uh, band and my favorite artists of all time, The Clash and Joe Strummer and Mick and Paul and Topper. Um, I want to actually talk about something a little bit um, unusual or off topic today, as I often do. Um, and that is Father's Day, which is coming up in the United States this weekend. And I have some thoughts about that. And believe it or not, I can tie it back to the clash. But I also want to, uh, before I get into that, uh, touch uh, on a few things. Number one, I won't go back into the political discussion last week about the indictment of the ex-president. But I saw today um, a short clip from John Stewart's uh, show called The Problem where he addressed some of the issues relating to uh, the prosecution of an ex-president and specifically the concerns people on the right are uh, raising about whether or not this is some sort of, um, I almost said collective, selective prosecution. Uh, And I thought he handled that question very well. Um, He, uh, for example, pointed out pretty clearly that this is a, a man who's used power and privilege to avoid responsibility and accountability f- for all of his life. So it's kind of an odd thing to say that now he faces criminal prosecution. There's something selective about it. Uh, but in any event, I won't go into all that, but I would suggest you uh, check out that clip. It's about two minutes and 15 seconds. But uh, so it won't take a lot of your time, but I thought it was well put. Uh, that's John Stewart on his uh, new show called The Problem. Um, another thing I wanted to mention, kind of on a sad note, is that uh, one of my favorite um, American artists who has you know very clearly been inspired by Joe and the Clash is a guy by the name of Jesse Mallon from New York City. He's played in a, di- a number of different bands, but he's also had a long career as a solo artist Um, and Jesse has over the years especially recently with uh, the pandemic and with bars and restaurants being closed down and musicians not being able to play live for an extended period of time he's done a lot of great work trying to raise money for other artists and for people in the hospitality industry who um, suffered during that time period so you know he's an all-around good guy he's also a, a big Joe Strummer fan big Clash fan, always supported the band. Um, And so obviously uh, I like him for that reason, if not for anything else. But um, anyway, he suffered um, a very rare form of stroke a few weeks back. It was actually in his spine. I had never heard of a, a stroke in a person's spine before. But apparently he was out with some friends for dinner. He started feeling some pain and then he collapsed. Fast forward to now, it's about six weeks later, he's been hospitalized. Um, He is uh, essentially at this point paralyzed from the waist down. And um, 
you know, he's going to face some, you know, rehab and so forth, but the long-term prognosis is unclear. Uh, and uh, Rolling Stone had an interesting, not interesting, had an article about this, and a number of other uh, artists and, and individuals have talked about it. I saw that, you know, The Clash on their page posted about something about it um, on one of the Joe Strummer social media uh, pages they posted about it. And also, the first time that I saw it actually was when uh, the actor Michael Imperioli posted on Instagram about what happened to Jesse. Michael is a guitar player and a performer in his own right, in addition to being an actor. He's also from New York, so there's a close tie there. Um, and he expressed, obviously, great concern about Jesse and his recovery. But what the Rolling Stone article points out and what all these other folks have pointed out is that there is a fundraiser for, for Jesse sponsored by um, an outfit called Sweet Relief that provides a lot of uh, assistance to musicians and people in the recording industry in particular. Um, they, they like Jesse, have done tremendous work during the pandemic trying to get relief to people who are, weren't able to <clears throat> make a living doing what they normally do. And they also help artists who need financial assistance for medical reasons and so forth. So they've got a fundraiser for Jesse. I'll put a link uh, to that in the show notes, in the episode notes. But uh, please, if you can, help him out. He's a good guy. He's helped out a lot of other folks. Uh, in the Rolling Stone article, he talks about um, how awkward he feels asking for help. So, I mean, I can appreciate that and understand it, but he's well-deserving. One thing I just want to uh, mention about Jesse and in relation to The Clash is that during the dark times of the pandemic, in the in the early part of the pandemic, um, he was one of the of many artists who put together an online sort of documentary film slash celebration of Joe Strummer's life called "A Song for Joe." You can actually still um, find this on the internet. I'll I'll put a link in the notes. Um, but it featured an incredible array of artists. That's my desk chair making that noise, by the way. It always does that to me. I'm not good at sitting still. Anyway, the, the Song for Joe um, film included an incredible array of artists. And, you know, there were cover versions of uh, some of Joe's music. But just, just to run down a short list of the people who were involved in this. It was, there was some live footage of Joe Starmer himself. Beto O'Rourke was part of it. Bob Weir, Bruce Springsteen, Kate O'Riordan from the Pogues. Um, th this is in um, uh, alphabetical order here that I'm looking at this. So uh, Jesse Malin, of course, was involved. Hines was involved, Joe Eli, Lucinda Williams. By the way, Lucinda Williams did an incredible cover of Straight to Hell as part of this, which is really amazing. Tom Morello, Steve Buscemi, um, just a number of, of great people. Matt Dillon, um, Shepard Ferry, that's not surprising at all. HR from Bad Brains. Um, anyway, just a, a really fascinating thing. Some great uh, covers of some of the, some Clash songs and some original uh, Joe Starmer songs. Um, anyway, good stuff. I said original, I mean some of his solo music. Not, he wrote all of it. He wrote all the songs, as far as I can tell, but uh, but it, they did some covers of some of his music too. Really cool, um, really cool movie, and it was great to see Jesse as part of that. 
Um, the By the way, just as an aside, the Bob Weir thing is wild. Bob Weir from the Grateful Dead and Joe Strummer apparently um, became friends when they were um, they were both they were both at I don't know whether it was the same party or separate parties in the same building. I think it was in New York. Anyway, the story goes that there was a chance meeting between the two of them, and they ended up sitting up on like the rooftop of this building having a, a hours long conversation about music and they became fast friends which is really wild you know i mean it's cool in a lot of ways but it's wild to have joe strummer and bob weir connecting um because in so many ways the mu they're musical opposites right i mean the the dead were a jam band um you know they wrote these long drawn out um trippy songs and the clash were very direct and in your face but in a lot of ways, there is a there is a similar spirit in as much as it was all about people expressing themselves in their own way, whatever that way is. But I, I'm, I'm just absolutely fascinated by the connection between Bob Weir and Joe Strummer. I think that's really cool. And in this um, song for Joe uh, a film, there's a live well, it wasn't live, it's recorded. <laughs> There's a performance. Bob Weir and, and uh, Jesse Mallon do a cover of um, uh, Death or Glory, which is really cool. Uh, so check that out. Um, the, uh, the other thing that I had to mention, and, and again, this is more class-related than the discussion of uh, Father's Day that I want to get to, but uh, it turns out that 45 years ago today, I'm sitting in my office recording this, on June 16th, uh, 45 years ago today, The Clash released the single White Man and the Hammersmith Palais. I always add the word the in there. It's not in there. The title of the song is White Man and Hammersmith Palais. It's on the U.S. version of the debut album, which came out maybe a year or so after the British version, the original version. Um, but they released it as a single uh, in 1978 and this is you know one of the things that I've, I so love about the early class stuff is how and I've talked about this before but I'll talk about it again anyway um, is how they um, they just they were so aware of what was going on um, you know they had no <clears throat> pardon me no illusions about how it was that they were going to make music and make a living in the corporate capitalist world of, of pop music that they were coming into. And the lyrics of the song are just amazing when you consider the fact that they were brand new to the business and yet still they knew what was going on. For example, they, there's the, these verses that go, punk rockers in the UK, they won't notice anyway, they're all too busy fighting for a good place under the lighting. The new groups are not concerned with what there is to be learned. They got Burton suits, ha, you think that's funny, turning rebellion into money. And I, honest to God, I think that line, turning rebellion into money, is such a genius line when you consider, you know, what they're talking about. Uh, it's, it's just amazing that they were able to be that clear-headed and insightful. They were brand new and they knew, knew what was up. So I thought that was, was very, very cool. Uh, in any event, so, you know, um, my wife and I do our own podcast called In the Shadow of the Evening Trees, and we were recording our show the other night, and uh, it, it was a rambling discussion about 
Chicago sports, which seems kind of strange, it has nothing to do with what we ordinarily talk about, but that's what we were talking about in our show. And then towards the end, she turned to me and said, with Father's Day coming up, you know, I wanted to wish you a happy Father's Day. And it was a very nice thing to do, and we talked about that a little bit. And uh, and I appreciate that. Um, but it you know it kind of got me thinking. I wasn't going to do a show that related to that um, subject, but it it is something that I think I think about a lot this time of year. You know, uh, my own dad um, passed away. Uh, it's going to be thirty years next spring. He he passed away in May of uh, nineteen ninety four, and uh, Jennifer and I were actually out of town on the anniversary this year of his passing. I might have, I wasn't recording shows that week or I might have mentioned it then. But, um, and I don't know, I probably, you know, after uh, 20 episodes of the show, or I guess this is the 20th, but after 20 episodes of the show, I think I've, I've forgotten half the things that I've said. But uh, I probably talked about him in the past, but I, I, I want to talk about him in, in connection to music but also in connection to, um, you know, his involvement in like social causes, which is sort of very similar in some ways to what the what the Clash did and what they were all about. Um, but first of all, you know, I have kind of a weird feeling about the concept of Father's Day generally. Um, I like it, you know, because I had a very good relationship with my own dad and I have kids and I like to think I have a very good relationship with them. They may tell you differently. But but from a personal perspective, I, you know, I like thinking about my dad, even though, it's, you know, it's sad that he's passed away and I miss him. But I do like thinking about him because because we were close and, and he did some really cool things in his life. And I had some pretty good experiences with him over the years. And I also, of course, like thinking about about my own kids and you know and and spending time with them and all that so um, so in and of itself for me personally I like the day I like the acknowledgement I like to acknowledge my dad and I like the fact that uh, you know my relationship with my children is important to me but anyway but but more broadly though I have I have this weird feeling about it and that is because I, I feel like a lot of us you know um, view fatherhood as being something distinct from being a parent, right? Like, like we look at it like, you know, we're, we're super special when we show up to the kid's baseball game or a school play or we plan a big vacation to Disneyland, you know, uh, or Disney World, I guess. Do people still go to Disneyland? Whatever. Uh, to a theme park, let's say. Um, and we think about those kind of big gestures that we like to do and everything like that. And we pat ourselves on the back and go, wow, I'm such a great dad. I went to that baseball game or that play or whatever, right? And uh, when you think about, like, the characteristics of a mom, what makes somebody a mom, and you think about what are the characteristics of parenthood. Like imagine a big Venn diagram of things that make a mom a mom and things that make a parent a parent. Those things almost completely overlap, right? Or maybe they, they do completely overlap. But when you think about things that make a dad a dad and things that make a parent a parent, a lot of times 
for, for a lot of people, those things really don't overlap that much, right? And they should. Because the job isn't going to the baseball game or the play. Those things are great. The job is being a parent. And your responsibilities really aren't that much different than the mom's responsibilities. Except maybe in those first few months where a child is breastfeeding and you can't really do that. <laughs> but aside from that, you know, once the child is born, your responsibilities are more or less the same. And more importantly, you should think of them as being the same. And you should want them to be the same. And you should think of yourself first and foremost as a parent because that's the job. And I feel like most moms view it that way and not enough of us dads do. So that's my, that's my Father's Day lecture. Be a parent. You know, it, it's okay to use a gendered term and say you're a mom or you're a dad. But moms think of themselves as parents and we also need to do that. Anyway, that's my rant on that. However, that's not why you called, as David Letterman would say. Um, so I started thinking about the, 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 father's, the Father's Day thing after Jennifer mentioned it on our show. And, and obviously I think of it because it's coming up. And I, I remember this, this photograph that I, I got after my father passed away. My mom put together these like little scrapbooks of photos for all of the kids in the family from photos that they had collected over many, many years. Um, and she gave them to us, I, I want to say at Christmas time one year, again, after my dad passed. And in my scrapbook, um, aside from embarrassing school pictures of myself and <laughs> things of that nature, uh, there was a picture of my dad and um, I'm in the picture, although it's not really a picture of me and my dad. It's, it's sort of, I, I guess I kind of photobombed um, my dad in the picture without realizing it. But the picture was, somebody took the picture in 1966, July of 1966, probably on my dad's birthday. And I, I imagine it was probably my mom who took the picture, but whoever took the picture snapped the photograph of my dad standing in our kitchen with with his guitar he had a guitar he had this old guitar that he played uh, he played folk songs on it he played you know all these traditional songs there's a hole in the bucket and stuff like that uh you know and i remember that he, you know he liked pete Seeger. he liked uh, um woody guthrie he liked all that kind of that kind of music i mean you know when you think about it so my dad was born in 1921 um, obviously, he would be going on 102 years old right now, which is insane to think about. But, um, you know, Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie and all those folks, were they were all of the same era. So it kind of makes sense um, that he would play that kind of music. And, and, you know, that kind of music was still sort of popular in the 60s. Uh, there was a, a thriving folk music scene in Chicago and, and whatnot. So I remember my dad playing that guitar and playing those songs. And in that photograph, in this fuzzy kind of photograph, <laughs> I'm in the, I'm kind of in the, in the front. I must have been running past because I'm kind of blurry when whoever took the picture. But I like it because it's me and my dad, even though it's not really meant to be a picture of me and my dad. But it was cool. Um, and so here's, here's the kind of 
weird circuitous sort of clash connection to all of this. So some, some years ago, obviously many, many years after the photograph was taken, many, many years after my father passed away, um, there, my friend Garland Jeffries, I'm going to call him my friend because I've gotten to know him over the years, the great New York singer-songwriter Garland Jeffries, the, the, uh, the poet laureate of uh, Roller Coaster Town, um, wrote a song called Collide the Generations. And he, he, there's a website dedicated to this song, this Garland Jeffries song. Um, and he, he describes writing the song this way. And I'm going to tie all this up. Believe me, I will. He says, this all started when our daughter was, 18, was born 18 years ago. This website went up a few years back, so she's older than 18 now. But anyway, um, he says, from the beginning, I sang to her and she would sing back to me. Sharing music together has been one of the best parts of being a father, and it inspired the song Collide the Generations, which is also partly about the feeling I think all parents have about their kids passing by them at the speed of light. Oh boy, do I know that. Um, and then Garland goes on to say, that got me thinking about how over the years, just about everyone I know gets excited when they talk about sharing their favorite music with their kids, and that younger musicians talking about older musicians influencing them is pretty intense too. So basically what he did was he created a website inspired by the song that was sort of dedicated to this idea of people sharing music over the generations. And he encouraged people that he knew or people who were fans to submit stories and pictures and so forth. So I had, you know, I'd gotten to know Garland over the years and I had this photograph of, of um, my dad and me, you know. And so I, I, I'm looking at that photograph and I'm thinking about, you know, my dad playing the guitar and my dad, um, you know, being a, a folk music um, a fan at the time. And, you know, and this is also, by the way, just as an aside, this is also around the time when the website was up. It was also around the time that Pete Seeger died. And as I say, my dad was a Pete Seeger fan, you know, and I thought about that that concept of sharing music across the generations. I'm looking at the guitar in the picture, and I'm thinking, you know, so that was 1966. Maybe eight or nine years later, my brother Tom, who's since passed away, took that same guitar and he got on the L, and he went downtown to downtown Chicago to the Old Town School of Folk Music, where he learned how to play guitar. And for decades after that, he was playing music. He was playing rock music. He was playing country music. He was writing original compositions. But it started with that guitar that's in that picture with my dad from 1966. And then many years after Tom, took that guitar downtown to play, to learn to play at the Old Town School of Folk Music. My wife and I went, signed up for guitar lessons, would drive into the city on Saturday mornings and take guitar lessons. Inspired, you know, by my dad and that guitar and my brother Tom taking that guitar to Old Town. We went to the same place that Tom went to, you know, and uh, to, to learn to play. And I play guitar now largely because of that picture and that guitar and my brother taking that guitar and, and so on and so forth. So it's this very similar thing. 
So anyway, so when Garland was asking people to submit um, ideas for this website, I sat down and, you know, I had, I had learned not long before that time that Joe Strummer, when he was, you know, in the days before he was in, in The Clash, would take his guitar, you know, and he would go down to the subway in London and he would busk in the subway. And he played a lot of, uh, of American folk music. And who did he play? He played a lot of Woody Guthrie songs, you know? And he, um, he even called himself Woody Mellor instead of Joe Strummer. His original name is John Mellor. And so he used the, sta the stage name, the busking name, the whatever. Um, uh, he would play, um, uh, you know, Woody Guthrie songs under the name Woody Mellor. And so, you know, all of the sudden, and I'm thinking about the I'm thinking about the photograph, and I'm thinking about the Garland Jeffrey song, and I'm thinking about that guitar, and I'm thinking about, you know, uh, John, uh, well, uh, Joe Strummer, you know, playing those songs in the subway, playing the songs in the subway that my dad would play back then, and it was just this kind of wild revelation of that th there was this similarity. Uh, the similarity in terms of the music, but more than that, the the, the similarity in terms of the um, the inspiration, I guess you know, like like Joe was a sort of revolutionary, but like compassionate revolutionary who believed in social change, but he didn't believe in political violence. He didn't believe in, you know, he opposed fascism and racism and all the things we've talked about on this show before. I think about my dad. You know, my dad was a World War II combat vet but he came back to the states like a lot of guys you know affected by what he saw over there and I guess you could say you know dedicated to make sure nothing like that ever happened here and so you know whereas a lot of people of his generation were much more politically conservative and they supported Eisenhower and they supported Nixon and they supported Barry Goldwater and on and on and on through Reagan and the Bushes and so on and so forth my dad actually was very liberal even though you know he was a like I said he was a World War II combat vet you know so he came back from the war and he ended up doing stuff like writing the first diversity policy for our public schools in the town where I grew up. That was, that was he wrote it in 1972, it was implemented in 1973, so that's 50 years ago. My dad was working on integrating the public schools and, and integrating our community, and my, and my mom was involved in all that too. But you know, just like, just like Joe Strummer's, you know, against violence, against fascism, against um, racism and things like that. You know, these are, my dad literally fought the fascists in Europe and then came back and, you know, tried to, tried to fight against racism and stuff like that uh, here at home. And so, you know, these connections started just kind of swirling around my head. So I wrote a piece for, for Garland's website. He was kind enough um, to post it on there. Um, and I just remember, um, you know, the, 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 just the, the revelation that there was this similarity in, in, in where people across these vast generations from, from my dad born in 1921, Joe Strummer born in 1952, people my age, you know, born in the 60s. Um, and yet there's that thread that just keeps, that just keeps going. 
so anyway, I, I think that's really interesting, and I'm I'm glad um, I'm glad that I discovered this connection, however late it may have been in my fandom of the Clash. Um, but uh, you know, it really was a neat. It really was kind of a neat thing to to come to realize. Anyway, so you know, that's what I've been thinking about the past couple of days uh, since we recorded that episode, and and thinking about my dad. Um, <laughs> my dad uh, used to love to play the song Worried Man Blues that Pete Seeger, of course, did a cover of. And I think that would sit well, too, with Joe Strummer and, and The Clash. You know, it takes a worried man to <laughs> sing a worried song. Yes, indeed, it does. Uh, but anyway, so that's my little uh, digression for today, talking about The Clash, talking about Father's Day. As I said at the beginning, if you get a chance uh, to visit the uh, Sweet Relief uh, fundraiser for Jesse Mallon, please do that. Uh, Jesse's a good guy, and he's in need, and we need him. Uh, give a listen to White Man and Hammer, Hammersmith Palais. I did it again. I added the the in there, didn't I? Give a listen to White Man and Hammersmith Palais. It's pretty remarkable given that that song was written and released 45 years ago, um, but it sounds like it's brand new. And if you um, are celebrating Father's Day this weekend, you have any thoughts on that subject, feel free to leave a comment in the space below. I'm just about running out of time, so I will leave it at that. Thanks again for listening. I appreciate um you're taking the time to listen and if you have any um, thoughts or comments please leave them below i will see you again or talk to you again um, next week and that's a wrap